We are recording. <laughs> to, um... Nope. Well, we are on our way to 600,000 plays. Is that it? Brando. I thought we had hit a million by now. Not yet. Damn. But we are, um... We are on our way to another record-breaking year of listening. Nice. You know, 2017 was a short year because that's when we started, but 2018 blew that away. Wow. And then 2019 was the big growth. We, like, tripled those numbers, and, and then 2020 increased again, and 2021 increased again, and uh we're uh on our way to blowing that one out of the water again in 2022. Thank you everybody. Thanks listener. And um also should thank all of our Patreon sponsors, our PayPal donators and anybody who's sent me messages about, "Hey, just ordered up some manscaped." So thank yeah. all of you guys who are supporting the little things that we do, buying coffee from the Abyss Coffee Co. and Manscaped products and using our code uh, to give us a little bit of uh, recognition and support. Much appreciated, especially those of you who give money and buy from our sponsors. And send us lavish gifts. The lavish gifts really, that really kind of makes my day when we get a lavish gift. As a matter of fact, we still have a couple of beers uh, that we you have know, to crack open. I know on a wreck. Uh, I've got them. I've got them sitting here waiting. I wanted to do a special occasion. Um, I know good old Philip from Germany is probably thinking those sons of bitches took my beers, took my pilsner glasses, just forgot all about me. But no, we're trying to make it a big special occasion, so it's coming. No, I think the listeners should know that each and every listener is special to us. Absolutely. So. Especially German beer senders. They're up there at the top of the list. So thank you, Philip. Okay, so I've got a juicy <laughs> real-world scuba accident today. Juicy beef. Juicy, eh? Did you ever see that Saturday Night Live with uh, Bill Hader doing the juicy beef? <laughs> anyway. Well, no. You have all Off the Saturday track. Lives. You have a log of all the Saturday Night Live track and how to segue them into a Great Die podcast episode? No, occasionally, though, like uh, it'll pop up on a YouTube feed or something. I'll, go, I'll click on it. It's like, you know, Saturday Night Live's funniest moments or something. And I haven't really watched it in about 20 years, but I like Bill Hader. Actually, a, a lot of the uh, talent on the show is hilarious. So they'll have their greatest. Or the moments where they couldn't hold the laugh back, you know. They were supposed to be uh, doing lines and whatnot, and uh, they couldn't hold the laugh back. It broke oh, yeah, the laughter, yeah. yeah. Broke character, if you will. There's a lot of them with Bill Hader. He's pretty uh, He's pretty funny. And Kirsten Wig, Bill Hader and Kirsten Wig. Watch it if you get a chance. You'll laugh. I promise. All right. I'll give it a go. You'll have, you'll have a few lines for the podcast. Juicy beef. Well, this is a killer wreck dive. A killer wreck dive. Literally? Literally. Literally. It comes from the pen of good old Michael Ainge. Oh. Groovy. Who used to, used to write those 
you know, lessons for life out of uh, Scuba Diving Magazine. But he's got a book that he put out called Diver Down, kind of look looking at a bunch of those, like a detailed, in-depth look at a lot of those articles he would write and then how to avoid these real-world scuba accidents. And now that we are middle of July, like peak of uh, Great Lakes shipwreck diving season, I thought this one was a little fitting, especially uh, as, as even as summer starts to wind its way down and people look to travel this fall. I mean, wreck dives are always one of the most alluring dives on on any dive trip, you know, getting a chance to get on the cool shipwreck. But as we know, there's a big difference between diving around a shipwreck and thinking that you're just going to explore the underbelly of of an old ship, especially with just typical recreational gear. Or training, right? Right. And even, you know, some of the more popular ones, I mean, even as commercialized as, as they can be, I mean, it's, it's still, man, when the lights go out in an overhead, the lights go out. Literally. And that's where we're going this week, eh? That's where we're going. Groovy. So we got a couple of characters, Brando. Okay. Do we have to do voices? Gary and Julie. Gary and Julie. They're the divers that get into some trouble. Can I be Gary? You can be Gary. Gary's a big dude. He's a big dude. In my mind. And Julie's the love of his life. Dainty. (laughs) (laughs) And then we've got the uh, tough and... Knight in shining armor, uh, Dive Master John. Dive Master John is in the house. Running in to try to save the day. This is a tragic tale. It's not a good one. You know, when you're inside of a shipwreck and you get lost and you're running low on gas and your no decompression limit, you know, comes and goes and you're trapped, don't know how to get out. Banging your head and tank into into the uh, uh, the overhead above you. That's when you'll want to be sure that you're manscaped down there, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's when yeah, it's going to go through you're... your brain. Damn, I hope my body looks nice and clean shaven down there. <laughs> right, you you don't want to get to the surface, you know. Have the, the, the coroner come <laughs> to examine your dead-ass yeah. body. Right. Find out that not only did you break virtually every rule right. that you were given in scuba class, plus on top of it, you're a hairy yes. beast. Well, God forbid you have dirty underwear. Whoa. And dirty your underwear. mom's going to wow. freaking roll over. It's, a tri- it's the trifecta <laughs> of don't do's. Don't. It's a trifecta. Well, at least we have control over one of those things because of the Great Dive Podcast. Yeah, don't forget to put in your code, TGDP, at checkout, people. It probably wasn't the best segue into a... Uh, well, we might as well go we with it we got to now. use it. We've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm a little too eager to insert the Manscaped plug. Well, you must, you must have just been talking to Kevin, who just sent me a message yesterday saying, Hey, man, I just ordered my performance package 4.0. Nice. Oh, Kev. Way to go, bud. 
Welcome to the yeah, welcome so to the his, club uh, of the, the Clean Crotch Club. Yeah, welcome to the Clean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the Clean Crotch Club. C cubed, baby. Are you in the Great Dive Podcast Clean Crotch Club? Because if you are, you know you got some well preserved crops. Your balls are not chafed, if you know what I mean. You have no erroneous ear and nose hairs. That's awesome feeling, too. The streamlining of your whole body as you move through this atmosphere, whether it's water or air, the difference is noticeable. You don't have any nicks in your sack. If well, you, know you don't I mean. want that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Because you've been using that skin-safe lawnmower 4.0. Even if you want to get nice and close, that ceramic blade of that electric trimmer, I mean, you can... Here, let me show you. Here, here watch. Look how close I can get this That's thing. That's amazing. Gross, but amazing. See, the, look at look at look down here. Look at this spot down underneath this spot right here. Look at you, look, look how clean this is. It's like a baby's bottom down. Dang. Hang on a minute. I'm gonna give a couple little spritzes of the old crop, crop reviver here. Woo! Like a new man. All right, everybody, go over to manscaped.com. Put in code TGDP. Order your stuff today. Save 20%. And, and, Randall, what else besides 20%? Free shipping. There you go, people. What the hell? Like I say, I don't know how they're making money. 20% off and free shipping. Maybe they're just trying to make the world a less hairy place. And fresher. A fresher, more revived place. Absolutely. A more refreshed, less hairy place. Gary was manscaped. Was he? Julie Fuck. was Womanscaped. Whoa. And both were relatively new divers. They're in their early 20s. They're college sweethearts, Brando. Damn. Oh, Gary. They had traveled to a popular tropical destination with a group during a break in their university schedule. And after enjoying a couple days of shallow water reef diving, Gary convinced Julie to sign up for a deep wreck dive, even though they both knew that the dive was technically beyond their experience level. Although Julie was nervous about the dive, Gary, with typical machismo, assured her that he would take care of her on the dive. Hmm. I promise you, I will take care of you. I promise you, everything will be okay. And this is, this is setting up the stage for what, we would call a trust me dive, right? Absolutely. Whenever you, yeah, someone's going to take care of the other person, that, that's a trust me dive. Which is, which is why, you know, you're supposed to start shallow, stay shallow, build up the comfort and experience, and then get the training and equipment mm-hmm. that's commensurate with the level of dive that you're trying to do. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the instruction out there is setting you up for, you know, following the leader of, the dive master guidance you know that leadership on a, on a dive like on these big group dives so just getting getting in the water and going off on your own on a dive that's beyond your ability to let alone get inside of an overhead which is a whole new world of diving yeah i would say the average recreational diver doesn't realize the hazards involved with a going into an overhead but going into a shipwreck overhead has its own unique problems and uh, hazards. Right. I mean, obviously, I mean, a lot of the shipwrecks that we have in the Great Lakes that are within recreational limits of depth, the few that you can get inside are even a higher level of danger because it's so tight. You don't have the room. 
compared to, I mean, right. you would think that, you know, you're down in the Caribbean and you get one of these big giant wrecks that's not covered in, you know, a mucky silt like something in the Great Lakes that's been there for a hundred years. But the big giant ones that have multiple levels and twists and turns, that creates a whole different type of a problem. Yeah, not to mention being inside of a, a steel freighter, they're going to be upside down, capsized usually, or on their sides. Anyway, the orientation is off. Everything's a, a little different when it's upside down or sideways. Especially when you're uncomfortable and, and start getting panicky and nervous. You know, when that anxiety hits, now what seems like a, a up is a down and what seems like a left is a right, it, it can be really disorienting. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're trying to rush to get out of someplace you know you shouldn't be in any longer. Yeah, and the other side of this is this is nothing new as far as knowing not to do this. Because there's a slew, a long history of recreational divers venturing into shipwrecks, getting lost, stirring up the the silty atmosphere inside the wreck, and uh, not finding their way out. And, you know, literally some folks are two, three feet from the exit, and they die because they can't get out. They don't know where they're at. Right. Now, you can understand being in the Caribbean, right? You've got... Never. hundred feet of visibility. The water's warm. Who wants that? <laughs> Who wants that crazy crap? <laughs> right. You want a shipwreck dive, you should be cold. <laughs> Throw me under the ice or in some... Dirty brown water. Conditions for the dive were ideal. The sea had a very slow, gentle swell. Visibility in the water exceeded 100 feet. The current, although frequently pronounced at this site, was nearly imperceptible. The water was 84 degrees. The divers had planned a 25-minute bottom time. He says this is going to barely keep them within the planned no decompression limits, providing they didn't drop below the weather deck of the shipwreck. So meaning like they're in between that 100, 130 foot mark. Right. You know, depending where they, whether they're, you know, down in the sand or up on the upper deck of the wreck, you know, they're going to be in between four and five atas. So kind of pushing the, skirting the limits of the recreational training. After they got to the dive site, Julie and Gary along with the rest of the dive group, listened carefully to the captain's briefing. And in addition to the usual information about the dive site, the entry and exit procedures for the boat, the general navigation information, the captain stringently cautioned the divers to not venture inside the wreck. Stay out the wreck, yo. STFO, people. I think when when the dive leader gives the briefing and they say something like don't and then they follow it with do you know whatever it just like in a vast majority ticks off the box must do whatever that's why you gotta like if you're gonna be given the dive briefing on the boat you gotta have like a strong personality <laughs> you gotta be just like remember hey, Brandon, when you start getting a, into that those give me a samuel l jackson given the dive briefing <laughs> <laughs> hey motherfucker stay out the fucking boat Need to, uh, you need to know some biblical quotes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's always, it always amazes me. You go and you just hook up on a charter. There's almost, on every single one, somebody who's going to do exactly what the uh, dive leader says not to do. Right. Cocksuckers. 
The rebel. It's a rebel in the human. Yeah, but I think there's a difference between, you know, being on a on a guided reef dive and, and the dive master saying, I'm gonna take everybody this way and Somebody saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to start off going the other way and, and catching back up just to, to stay away from the huge crowd yeah. versus, you know, I, I'm going to try to swim three reefs over and just do my dive <laughs> over there. You know, there's, there's a big difference be- between that and, you know, doing something that has been expressly said, do not do. For instance, this right here, I've got a dive boat of six, eight, ten you know, recreational Scoobies. <laughs> and then, yeah, exactly. And then for, we're going to be on this wreck. Don't go in the goddamn shipwreck. Motherfuckers. Say wreck one more time. Get that goddamn dive light <laughs> out your goddamn hand. It's still 7.30-ish in the morning. And I can't be screaming motherfucker in my house. <laughs> oh, it's too it's too early to do Samuel L. Jackson being the dive yes. master for your household. Yeah, it's a wee bit early. You know what? What would help is maybe another cup of that fine abyss coffee. Uh, you remember that shark movie? Samuel L. Jackson blend? Yeah, they could have a blend named after that shark movie he was in. Because the wonderful thing about the Abyss Coffee Company and the coffee is that they're all kind of nautical related titles on the on those coffee oh blends. they they need uh, was it uh deep blue sea deep that was it thank you yeah yeah they need a deep blue sea blend <laughs> get your deep blue sea <laughs> coffee <laughs> yeah go to the abyscoffeeco.com people and um if you don't see the deep blue sea blend maybe maybe send her an email but in the process maybe get yourself a little uh megalodon blend instead put in code tgdp they got the siren they've got the calypso man calypso they got a bunch of bunch of good coffees over there yes i just finished up my bag of calypso and the and the the packaging is the coolest so get over there and check them out too now listen brando yes i'm listening you got me gary and julie entered the water toward the end of the line of divers descended the anchor line and began swimming along the wreck's superstructure and with less than five minutes into the dive curiosity got the better of old gary he poked his head into a dark passageway that descended into the hull of the ship he signaled to julie that hey let's go in but she refused she was the common sense one Right, right, because she, she knows. Like they told us not to go in, Gary, Gary, Gary. The the dive master John said, "Don't go in." So they swam along the wreck to the next entrance, which was illuminated by sunlight streaming through the portholes. And again, Gary tried to get Julie to you know, kind of just follow him in. She once again refused, but Gary insisted. Finally, Julie gave in, thinking they would only swim a little way. Gary, of course, takes off swimming into this wreck. Gary's like, I'm just going to put the tip in. <laughs> <laughs> just a little way. She, she resisted no, a little no, bit. Not yet. But then... <laughs> no, I'm not ready, Gary. I'm not ready. <laughs> Damn it. Just a little bit. Just no, a little bit. No, Gary. <laughs> Gary, no. Just... I promise, just, just a little bit. Just stay out here, up here. <laughs> well, and of course, once Gary got the tip in, he started going for it. Well, yeah. Well, once you're inside, you're like, 
this is cool. <laughs> let's go in further. <laughs> let's, let's go check out over and here. And of course, once Gary got the tip in, he went all the way in, if you know what I mean. Julie had to struggle to keep up with him. The divers made a couple of turns, descended a narrow ladder to the deck below, whereupon the interior of the wreck became pitch black. Gary and Julie turned around and attempted to swim back toward the light, but brown particles floating in the water obscured everything. The divers eventually found the ladder and swam up to the room above where they became separated. So they're separated. They're on different decks, quite possibly. And time-wise, I mean, this is supposed to be a 25-minute dive total. Yeah. Well, at that depth, too, I don't know what equipment they're using. I'm going to guess it's just a rental aluminum 80, and you're at 100 feet, which effectively doesn't give you very much gas. Yeah. I mean, you're two yeah. college sweethearts on uh, vacations, you know, spring breaking on a trip mm-hmm. uh, in their early 20s. Yeah, probably have just recreational, probably rental, your typical aluminum 80, which is barely a place for a 100-foot dive out in open water, let alone penetrating inside of a shipwreck. Right. You just don't have the gas to, to plan anything appropriately. Right. There's very little time you can spend there safely and keep a reserve for an emergency. Yeah. Right. I mean, try to plan out a reserve for an emergency inside of a shipwreck in 100 feet of water leaves you with maybe four or five minutes of inbound time word meanwhile on the surface the boat crew was searching with increasing alarm for the two divers who had failed to reboard with the rest of the group now this shipwreck was known to be you know one of the most popular in the area but at the same time was you know regarded as also one of the most dangerous dive sites in the area that's what makes it the most popular exactly danger but at the same time there's currents that pop up. So the dive crew, you know, doesn't know, did they try to go on the wreck? Did they get swept away in a current and get blown off the wreck? There's a lot going on. You know, I mean, this is, you know, when you're on a shipwreck like this and the the supervision is surface supervision, not in water. Right. adds for like a whole big, you know, question mark of possibilities. Anything could have happened. You let them go play by themselves and uh, trouble ensued. Yeah. Right. That's the problem with stupid divers and stupid people. It's like uh, one of my old instructor mentors back when I was a little kid at the dive shop. His famous line was, he'd shake his head and look at me and he'd he'd just go, they just don't listen. They don't listen. Well, you know, I think they assume that nothing can happen to them. Nothing's going to, you know, they make an assumption that that nothing's going to happen. And everyone knows. Something's about to happen, a, yeah. Well, when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. Right. And isn't that the case <laughs> of where like a lot of this is? Is It's like, it could never happen to me. It's never going to happen to I mean, right. ev- nobody ever thinks anything bad's going to happen to them. Otherwise, they, nobody would do the stupid shit that people always do. Right. Yeah. It'll never happen to me. So uh, the dive master... Rapidly grabs a bunch of gear, throws it on, jumps in, drops down to see if he could find 
these yeah. two divers. By this time, Gary's shit in his pants. All reason Whoa. had escaped. So much for manscaping. Right. I mean, that negates, it negates any need for manscaping. Need for manscaping right. <laughs> like if you're gonna if you're gonna go through all the trouble to buy that lawnmower 4.0, get all trimmed up and clean. Have yourself well presented to your college sweetheart Julie. And then you shit your pants. <laughs> What's the point? What was the point of all the way that work? You could have just left yourself all hairy and jungly. Yeah, because nothing's happening in that area. Like all those listeners out there that, that don't want to get their Manscaped package with code TGDP to save 20% off and free shipping. If you do any diving that requires goddamn condom catheter, you need to get your own Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0. You'll appreciate it. Gary latched onto one of the portholes and seemed to be trying to will himself through the impossibly narrow opening. That only works in the movies. <laughs> right. You can't get your head through that porthole. Mm-mm. Let alone your whole no. body. Julie tried several times to signal him that they needed to move to survive. And in spite of the warm water, a chill spread through her body. Her gauge showed less than 500 PSI, well into the red danger zone. She forced herself to think clearly, realizing that Gary was beyond help and there was nothing more she could do for him. Leaving him, she swam up another passageway, found it blocked, and swam back the way she had come. Gary was still there, locked in his death embrace with the unyielding porthole but he seemed to be frantically calling to someone or something outside the wreck. Son of a bitch. Yeah, frightening spot to be, huh? Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. Every time we have one of these stories, I kind of put myself in their shoes, you know, being trapped in a place like that. It'd be tough. Right. Well, this is uh, like, like where uh, Michael was just saying that, that the – thinking was gone you know for old gary like he's just panicking at that porthole and and in a way i can see it it's the only thing his eyeballs have seen that even resemble escape and freedom Mm -hmm. is this one glimmer of light like like everything else is a horrifying sight of of just black and brown and and yeah confusion Mm -hmm. This, although like he, he's never going to get through that porthole, the, the only thing he can think is this is the way out. John was an experienced dive master who had spent years crewing boats and diving these waters. As he searched the main deck of the wreck, his thoughts kept returning to the stories he'd heard about the divers it had supposedly claimed over the years. He had dismissed most of these as diving legend, but here he was, searching this very site, finding neither Julie nor Gary entangled in monofilament line or the strands of net hanging from the superstructure. He began to fear the worst. Moving from the deck, he dropped a few feet so he could see where the keel of the vessel touched the sand and began to circle its length, swimming first along the starboard side. Glancing at his gauges, he consciously slowed his breathing to a more normal rate. 
He understood the effects of anxiety and recognized that his air supply was dwindling far too rapidly for the depth of the dive and his activity level. Ignoring the side of the wreck, he searched the bottom as far away from the ship's structure as he could. He rounded the stern and began his trip back to the bow of the vessel, still seeing no sign of the divers. Suddenly, an odd noise eased into his consciousness. At first, he thought it was the grunting sound of a grouper or some other natural noise, but then it was accompanied by a frantic thumping. Looking back, he saw an arm hanging out of a porthole, desperately jamming the point of a knife into the side of the vessel. John was initially relieved, but then he was suddenly struck with the realization that the divers were lost inside the ship, and he had neither the equipment, the training, nor the experience necessary to retrieve them. God damn, motherfuckers. (laughs) Get these divers off my motherfucking shipwreck. Oh, yes. Who brought these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane? Yeah, this is a crazy story, man. Um, So he's down there looking. He realizes they're in the wreck. Can't do anything about it. Now what do you do? Well, there's that crazy story. We we mentioned a little bit about it back at uh, one of our National Cave Diving Month stories about that that dead man's handshake oh, for those two yeah. guys uh, I think they were you know exploring uh uh Wookie there yeah. in that exploration where the mm-hmm. the I think the German mm-hmm. guy was lost and yeah hand through hand through the crack you know and, and here we are with this right uh John swims over and, and and grabs Gary's arm and he had to shake it violently to even get his attention and Finally, the arm disappears inside, and a terrified face replaced it. John began to think rapidly. Like With some difficulty, he convinced the divers to show them their SPGs. Julie's gauge had dipped to nearly 300 PSI. Scribbling a quick note on his dive slate, he informed them that he would be right back and ascended rapidly to the surface, too rapidly. Crawling up two rungs of the ladder, he demanded the fullest tank they had and a regulator. While the tank was being prepped, he told the captain what was happening below. In the few seconds that John was on the surface, he and the captain tried to assess their options, settling on sending a call to another boat with full tanks aboard and hopefully a qualified wreck diver or at least the necessary rescue equipment. Oh, shit. Grabbing a tank that was approximately half full of air, John plummeted back to the bottom and attempted to pass the cylinder through the porthole to the distressed divers. But the hole that Gary, a few minutes ago, was trying to climb out of was too small even to pass the tank through. What the fuck was it? Gary thought he could get out of it, and you can't even pass a tank through it? (laughs) Well, that shows, like, when you're, like, all rational thought, you know, 
leaves leaves your body and brain. Yeah, goes out the porthole that goes you can't right fit out through. The porthole. <laughs> Yikes! Well, you can stick the regulators through there, which is what he did. Shoving the second stages into the divers, he held on to the wreck, supporting the cylinder and instructing them to begin breathing off of the new tank. They each grabbed the second stage and began violently sucking down the air supply. They had no more tanks up at the surface. They had one half a bottle. Really? Well, he took only the fullest one, right? Right. I get what you're saying, but... I mean, they're they're scrambling and panicking. I mean, none of this is like well thought out because if it was well thought out gary gary wouldn't have tried to play around rubbing the tip tip in rubbing the tip it's a you know it's a slippery slope literally (laughs) you slip it in bad thing bad Bad things can happen you're unprotected gary gary you're unprotected this is not the time tell you that to be slipping it in he's not He had to try and calm them to make the air last, all the while recognizing that they were mere minutes from probable death. Realizing his own anxiety was again elevated, he shook his head to clear it, slowed his breathing, and reached for his slate again. He wrote, calm, breathe slow. I'm here to help. Some simple phrases easy for the panic divers to understand. He wedged the regulator first stage over the edge of the opening, took Gary's hand, and placed it on the first stage to hold the tank in place. So if he was really like Samuel L. Jackson, he would have wrote, let's all be like little Fonzies. How's Fonzie, Brando? <laughs> How is Fonzie? We're going to be cool. He's cool, everybody. Everybody keep cool. So John passes off the bottle, right? And he notices himself is getting exceptionally low on air. And is there again, talking for a while. You know, again, and, and, and he's just on the, you know, the same aluminum 80 tank, most likely, right? So John surfaces again. And once again, too rapidly. Now the captain... It already prepared another diver's BCD with a reasonably full tank. And it was rigged up, sitting on the platform, kind of expecting John to be coming up low on gas. Hitting his inflator, John ripped off his BCD and left it floating in the water. He pulled the other tank in and began to descend, yelling to the captain to send more air and send it now. The captain yelled to him, What about decompression? But John never heard him. A few minutes passed. Two, five, ten. John had no concept of time. And he realized that his dive computer now floated uselessly on the surface with his discarded BCD. So he had no idea of his decompression status. Uh, What do you say to that, James? What do you say? Well... Um, this is where I would think, you know, my training and my history of being comfortable with a depth gauge and a bottom timer to at least have some sort of a conceptualization of what I'm going to be obligated to just based off of how deep I was and 
an overall bottom time versus so yeah. many divers have no idea what that computer's going to tell them until they look at it. And sometimes they look at it and they're very happy because it says they have lots of time left. And sometimes they get spooked because it's already into deco mode and they go, oh my God, how'd that happen? Well, they built it. Yeah. They, they brought on the deco mode and I think that's a side effect too. And I, I don't know when this, when was this story taking place? Did they say, and I just missed it. They don't, they don't date it. Okay. But I mean, this is, you throw out the tables. We're not going to teach the tables anymore. And basically, you teach new divers just to listen to their computers. But this is a dive master, so you'd think they'd have a background in the tables and actual decompression and what's going on. And you, so you, by teaching the tables, you get an idea of what goes on with time and depth as far as decompression obligation. It's not, and it's right. not a linear curve. It's, it's a, it's a. Pretty much, it's kind of an exponential. It's more like a um, Fibonacci sequence curve kind of thing. Yeah, and even like when a lot of new divers look at a dive table, they're absolutely overwhelmed. Well, it's just a matrix of numbers. Yeah. Because there's so many boxes and so many numbers, and they, they, they don't see any sort of a pattern whatsoever you know but as as you've been exposed to diving longer in in your life you know understanding something is is basic and simple as like a the old navy 120 rule to at least yeah. have something in the back of your head to have a general feel for where things are versus completely having no idea what that number is going to say when you grab when you grab a gauge Right. For each minute you go over the no decompression limit, knowing that it's not just like a trade-off. Oh, I'm a minute over. I got to pull a minute deco. No, it's like, okay, I'm uh, three minutes over. I got to pull four minutes deco. Oh, I'm 10 minutes over. I got to pull 22 minutes deco. Or That's the kind of progression you get with uh, decompression. That's why Every minute over that no decompression limit becomes more and more critical, and you owe more and more time. So something to think about. I mean, you don't have to uh, teach complete decompression in an open water class, but you should make people aware that if they find themselves in the situation, time's going to start getting added on quick. Right, right. It's like interest on a credit card. That's how they fuck you. <laughs> well, that's where the recreational world is so focused on just following a computer right well it's easy rather mm-hmm. rather than yeah yeah rather than there being a, a an expectation for people to understand a little bit more of how those numbers even pop up on the screen right and it's such a little thing to do to teach someone how to just get an, uh, a reasonable understanding of what happens if you blow past the decompression or no decompression limits it doesn't take that much on the surface the captain and the leader of the dive group were experiencing their own anxiety. The group leader, he says, was a young, inexperienced instructor, and he uh, lacked a true understanding of the situation, but nevertheless, he could recognize the grim lines of concern etching the captain's face and the frantic urgency of the dive master's actions on his repeated trips to the surface. Well, here's a, here's an experiencing building lesson for this mm-hmm. new budding instructor on the boat, eh? 
Yeah, well, what is he doing, too? He's, a, he's an instructor. He should be helping. Now, if Gary and Julie had received proper training Uh-oh. or had proper equipment, they probably would have never found themselves in those dire straits. As the situation progressed, John was able to maintain direct contact with Gary, who was still gripping the porthole for dear life. However, John could not see Julie, so he could only assume that she was still alive and breathing air from one of the two second-stage regulators he had brought down. Wait, I just told you what assumption does. Uh, uh, Makes an ass out of you and umption, and you don't want that. You know, that's a, a Samuel L. Jackson line, goddammit. <laughs> I thought uh, I thought it was more like the Fonzies. Fonzies is a Samuel We're just going to be three little Fonzies. <laughs> We're going to just Fonzies be three little Fonzies <laughs> on this shipwreck, everybody. Three little Fonzies. No, no. That was, that's one of his lines, too. But Sam's got a, he's got a plethora of lines. He's got, you know in his own special way, but that's one. Assumption. You know what they say about assumption. It makes an ass out of you and umption. That was uh, in The Long Kiss Goodnight. You don't remember that one, do you? I don't remember that one, no. That's, a, that's a, probably a lesser known one, but it's pretty good. Uh, it's another one where he was going to shoot somebody, and he gives him a... a sarcastic funny ass line like everyone knows when you make an assumption you make an ass out of you and umption i think he still shoots well played (laughs) i think my favorite favorite samuel jackson line my duty to please that booty (laughs) 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 out of quite possibly one of the greatest movies ever shaft you remember Shaft? Well, that that that's probably what Gary was thinking when he tried to <laughs> slip, slip the tip. It was his duty to please that booty. With Julie, it was his duty to please that booty inside that shipwreck. <laughs> well, right now, old John's out there kind of talking like what Samuel Jackson said in Jurassic Park. Which is, I don't know this one. I haven't seen Hold it. on to your butts. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Or, or he could be doing... There's a line in uh, The Avengers. It says, given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've decided to ignore it. There's a good one. Samuel. Samuel. I don't know how we got on the Samuel kick. What were we talking about? Oh, sharks. <laughs> sharks. What the, how did we end up here, James? How did we end up here? It's probably <laughs> something bad that I did. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever tried to have, uh, doing a podcast with Randall? <laughs> I could imagine ha- if there was this is what happens. If there was two of me, it'd be a you never it'd be a rabbit hole you'd never know where you'd you'd end up at. Now John was experiencing severe difficulties of his own by this point. His rapid descent from the surface had left him with no time to don any exposure protection. And even the relatively warm eighty four degree water was beginning to sap his body heat. He began to feel a severe chill that marks the onset of hypothermia. Though his computer was floating somewhere on the surface, he knew that at 100 feet plus, he would have a significant decompression issue. He was having serious doubts about whether he could stand the cold long enough to undergo decompression, 
even if he could figure out his profile and obtain the gas supply necessary to complete it. Right, which is like a, we enter a whole nother right. question here of like at this point, like what's more fatal in the uh, upcoming minutes, finishing the decompression or h- hypothermia setting in? Both are bad. Uh, both are going to be really yeah. bad, yeah. Inside the wreck, Gary appeared to be more relaxed, possibly owing to the cold or perhaps just knowing that help was on the way. John could still not see Julie through his very restricted view of the inside of the ship. Meanwhile, on the surface, the captain requested and obtained assistance from a nearby dive vessel. The vessel arrived and tied up alongside the dive boat with full scuba tanks and a diver who was qualified but ill-equipped for penetration diving. Jim was a fairly experienced cave diver who had also had logged hundreds of dives on shipwrecks in a number of different environments. Scraping together what pieces of equipment he could find, he was modifying his shallow water reef dive plan to that of a penetration rescue. Another diver with local knowledge who could quickly locate several probable points of entry into the shipwreck below would accompany Jim to the bottom. That diver would then stand by to render assistance while Jim penetrated into the wreck, located the missing divers, and guided them back to safety. Well, that's something. It is something. I mean, I mean, it's it's a hard, it's a hard position to be in you know uh, trying to do a a rescue of multiple divers but you really don't have the equipment the the equipment manpower you're hodge yeah you're hodgepodging together a bit of the the experience and training and then you're really hodgepodging together the equipment but i get it like you're you're making a like a hail mary attempt you know at the with whatever resources you have yeah that's basically what it is. It's a hodgepodge, <laughs> hodgepodge ingredients of a rescue. Yeah, I mean, you got Jim. So Jim was forced to dive with only a recreational single scuba tank and another 80 cubic foot cylinder that lacked the hardware needed to properly hang on his BCD. The plan was simple. Go in, find the divers, give them the spare cylinder to share if they did not have any gas remaining in their own tanks, and lead them to open water. And from there, Jim's assistant would take Gary, and Jim would take Julie to the ascent line, where they would attempt to complete the extensive decompression required after well over an hour at depths exceeding 100 feet. Yeah, that deco goes up pretty quick. Uh, Yeah, yeah, because you're you're really, really loaded. That's going to be a long hang. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, well over an hour at 100 feet. I mean, that's going to be an easy hour of decompression. Right. It was agreed that if Gary and Julie were in poor condition or gas supplies became an issue, the divers would ignore any remaining stops, bring them to the surface, put them on oxygen, and arrange for immediate transportation to a recompression chamber. All the divers in the rescuing party agreed that this was not the best option. But it was better than losing them to drowning, hypothermia, or panic. Fortunately, the rescue went more smoothly than Gary's ill-fated dive plan. Reaching the wreck, Jim assessed the location of the divers and went directly to a companionway that placed him close to them, only one deck below the weather deck of the ship. 
rapidly laying his makeshift line, Jim soon found himself in the room where Gary still clung to the porthole, sucking gas from the regulator hanging inside. When leaving the surface, Jim had prepared himself for the worst, but it still felt a deepening concern when he could not find Julie. A quick look around revealed no sign of her, and he made the snap decision to get Gary to safety and then come back for a more thorough search. Giving Gary the regulator from his spare tank, Jim guided him to the open water and passed him to the other rescuer. After checking his own gas supply, Jim re-entered the wreck, dreading what he was almost certain to find. Let me ask you something. Yeah. It's yeah. Your, your, your college sweetheart, and you took her diving, and you convinced her to go inside that wreck with you, and she, she done dead. Uh, how do you feel the rest of your life? I would say just I should just die here. Ugh, I know, man. This is it's a brutal. Yeah, one, right? if you make it out, you'll you'll be wishing you were dead for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, yeah. That's a that's a tough. It's a tough one to go. Well, guess what? It gets a little worse. Awesome. So I'm looking at the U.S. Navy tables. 81 minutes of air decompression at 20 feet after a 60 minute 100 foot bottom time. And if you had O2, 33 minutes of, of pure O2 at 20 feet. Which we, we know they don't even have. I mean, they've got a, a surface O2 bottle, like a Dan emergency kit, but not a scuba regulator attached to an O2 tank. As soon as John saw that Gary was safe, he discarded the spare cylinder he had been holding and began an immediate ascent, shivering violently. He knew that he was dangerously hypothermic, and it required his full concentration just to find and hang onto the ascent line. He ascended to 40 feet, where he planned to make a short stop, hoping that another diver would be there to help him judge how long he had stayed down and perhaps replenish his once again dangerously low gas supply. He stayed at 40 feet for a short while, and he remembers being devastated to find no one else on the line. His shivering was so uncontrollable now that he could barely grip the line, and he feared being swept down current or, worse, losing consciousness and drowning. Fully understanding he was nearly assured of a serious DCS hit, John decided to go ahead and make a direct descent to the surface and pray that he could get help from the boat. As he broke the surface near the bow, he was unable to call out and even had difficulty inflating the ill-fitting borrowed BCD. As he drifted by the boat, he was spotted by the divers on board who jumped into the water to assist him. Because he was unable to board the vessel on his own, the divers stripped his gear from him and assisted him back onto the deck. He was given towels and immediately put on oxygen as he tried to discern whether the numbness in his legs was the result of the cold or DCS? I'm still curious about the 40 foot. It was his decision to stop at 40 foot? Yeah, I think he was, you know, just trying to start some decompression as early as possible, slow down that ascent a little bit, try, try to control something. As far as decompression goes, uh, stopping at 40 foot wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Get up a lot shallower. You need to increase the gradient a little more. Not to mention you need to make your gas last. 
and it might be a little warmer 10 feet, 20 feet below the surface. Not to be critical, because I'm earning bad karma points being critical of uh, what is sure to be a dead man here. <laughs> and you will know my name is Brando when I lay my vengeance upon you for this terrible decompression profile. As John was being pulled aboard, Jim found what he had feared. Julie's lifeless body lying just one bulkhead beyond where Gary had been. Jim inflated Julie's BCD slightly so she could be towed more easily and slowly made his way back to the surface with her body. Her primary cylinder was completely empty and she had obviously drowned. Jim passed Julie's body to a diver on the surface and quickly returned to depth to complete a very short but required decompression stop. It is unclear why Julie left her buddy and the additional supply of air that was being provided from the porthole. Gary claims to have no recollection of what happened, but her decision to leave was obviously a fatal one. Hmm. I don't know about old Gary there. Yeah, Yeah, there's... Yeah, there's no telling what could have happened. I mean, it's only speculation, and I'm sure you could make a hell of a Samuel L. Jackson movie <laughs> about this, uh, <laughs> uh, of what occurred inside this shipwreck, you know, uh, fighting over the two second stages on that bottle that's that's hanging. I mean, it's, it's no telling what could have happened. It's, it's a horrific thought. Well, you don't have to fight if there's two. I would say, let's not fight anymore. Why are you always fighting with me? Maybe that's what happened. They got in a little spat. You got me into this. I am through with you. They got a little lover's quarrel. Even though Gary's dive computer still showed a significant decompression obligation, it was rapidly becoming obvious to Jim and his assistant that they would never be able to complete this. Assessing their own status, Jim realized that his decompression obligation would end very soon, and the other rescuer had no obligation at all. Once again, the decision was made to forego continued decompression, bring Gary directly to the surface, and put him on oxygen. As Gary was being pulled aboard the boat, John was becoming aware of paralysis in his legs and with severe pain in his lower back. He knew he had the bends, and he knew it was bad. Gary was laid beside John on the deck and also placed on oxygen. The boat crews rapidly weighed anchor and sped to the nearest dock and in a waiting ambulance. Before their arrival on shore, Gary was also experiencing the symptoms of severe DCS. Both divers were placed in ambulances and transported to the local chamber for treatment. Gary's treatment was successful, but in spite of repeated chamber treatments, John has never regained full use of his legs and probably will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Double damn. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough break for dive master on a boat trying to help out two idiots, you know, breaking, breaking an explicit rule from the captain of do not... Well, you do have to assume they're going to. You're going to, as a dive master, especially in a busy dive destination, Caribbean-type water with shipwrecks, you're going to have enough people there that there's going to be, uh, just by the, the law of odds of 
uh, how many idiots in every group. There's going, yeah. The, the law of odds of idiots. I like that one. I yeah. shouldn't call them idiots. I mean, I, I get it. You, you're tempted, but I think that people, uh, especially newer divers, when you can't say the D word as an instructor, you know, when you're given those restrictions on teaching, I don't know, it, it kind of leaves you lacking in certain skills and abilities to, to take care of something like this that you should expect. There's going to be people that just don't listen to the rules. Right, right. And and I, I know what you mean by like when it's frowned upon to say the, the D mm-hmm. word in your typical recreational training because they want everybody to to feel happy and wonderful and comfy about about going diving i think that's what lends people to make a stupid ass decision like this i agree right i think that like you should leave a class with a little bit of fear that you might damn well kill yourself underwater it's respect yes Agreed. Fear can can help with a little bit of that respect for being underwater, for knowing the equipment, for the level of knowledge or awareness you need to have in any dive environment. I mean, yeah, 30-foot reef, a lot easier than a 100-foot shipwreck. And if you don't have the training or equipment, don't even put the tip in. If you, if you don't have protection, don't even stick the tip in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Basically, that's what uh, proper training and equipment is. It's like uh, a pill. It's like the pill, or and if you're not manscaped, <laughs> you don't even want to, you know, show off any part of the. Michael Ainge gives us a couple of strategies for survival. The first one he says, obviously, never enter an overhead environment unless you're properly trained. I say my first one would be don't die. First strategy for survival: don't die. Yes. He actually, Michael gave us four strategies for survival. <laughs> Never enter an overhead environment unless properly trained. He says the mystery and clear water of many shipwrecks and other overhead environments make these dives look enticing and deceptively easy. But the dangers lurking inside are many and they are deadly. If this type of diving appeals to you, get properly trained. Yeah, I think that's one of our, our main points on on most of our our uh, storytelling podcast episodes it's get the training there there's ways to do this that they've developed over a long period of time trial and error a lot of smart people have come together with a lot of experience and come up with methods that work that they know that works because they've tested right and and so many people think that i'm just gonna stick the tip in but how many times is just sticking the tip in led to a future lifetime of pain and misery and and a life and a life not worth living Uh, a life-changing event (laughs) it can become a life-changing event that you really weren't planning on right just putting the tip in could be a life-changing literally event this is the whole premise of not doing these trust me dives, right? Because mm-hmm. if something happens to the one that's leading the way, like Gary, Gary in this mm-hmm. case, right? And poor Julie's there with no interest of being in there in the first place. So she she's already beyond her comfort zone. For her to get left in the let's get everybody out alive and safe position, even though they're both completely unprepared, she's even more so unprepared. Yeah. 
which is the whole point of why we say don't do the trust me dies because you have to assume that the least experienced person is going to be the one that needs to get everybody home. And if that person can't do that because they don't have the equipment, they don't have the training, then nobody should be there on that dive. Absolutely. Just project into the future a little bit with your thinking. If you do get lost, what is this person going to do, the person that I'm with? Even if you think you can remain calm and cool, find your way out. What about the person you're with? You're not in their brain, number one. Right, yeah. You have no idea if they're going to just lose their blanking mind. And this is and part of instructorship, are. too. Yeah. I mean, James, when you get a, uh, these new divers, just think about it. You have no idea, even at 30 feet, if uh, they're going, they are going to have a panic episode and lose their freaking mind. Now you are in a, a fight for your life and their life underwater. Absolutely. But inside of a wreck or caught in a, a small place or lost, dark, knowing you can't get back to the surface, the mind starts... Uh, oh, yeah. You're, you're increasing the likelihood of going to panic, for sure. If you've ever seen someone in full-blown panic, it's not fun. It's not fun to be around or see and dangerous. Advanced dives require advanced equipment. Diving activities like wreck penetration require the use and the knowledge of more advanced and more complex equipment setups. The importance of these items becomes abundantly clear as you complete your training. And even for like a recreational dive boat going out and visiting the shipwreck like this, man, in hindsight, you would think it would make sense to always have the potential of a, a configuration of gear on that boat that would accommodate and then a, a dive master with the training of wreck penetration and line laying to, to be experienced yeah. just for a case like this of, you know, a couple of, you know, macho divers who think that they're better than they are are going to go play around where they don't belong. You mean there's divers on a boat who, who think they're better than they, they, they actually are? I've had it with these motherfucking snake divers on this motherfucking <laughs> shipwreck. That's about it. Because I don't know if uh, I've ever been on a on a charter where there wasn't more than one even who's like uh very overconfident for a lot of wrong reasons and you're trying to figure out and i think they believe the confidence can carry them through anything they're they're going to encounter underwater but well there you go yeah uh which brings us to point three he says never allow a dive buddy to pressure you into a situation for which you are inadequately trained or inadequately equipped, or that otherwise makes you uncomfortable. The tip doesn't get anywhere near that shipwreck. Never gets near the opening. The orifice. Don't <laughs> put the tip near the opening unless you are prepared, properly prepared, for what's about to come. Literally. <laughs> I, I know you were, you were trying to work that in there, James. <laughs> Well done. Well done, maestro. When things go wrong, as they did on this dive, each diver must be able to think for himself or herself and plan an appropriate response. Julie trusted Gary to take care of her, and it cost her her life. Damn straight. This is a stupid-ass decision. 
Yeah. That's all. And to lastly, quote Samuel L. Jackson. It's not my words. And lastly, increasing the number of casualties never makes a situation better. Although John had the best of intentions and his dedication to rescuing the divers was admirable, there were options available to him that would have not jeopardized his safety as much. He should have engaged other divers on the surface to rotate down and hold the cylinders in place, a task that required no special skills. Even if John did not trust one of the other recreational divers on board or the instructor, he could have rotated with the boat captain, who was also an experienced dive instructor. He also could have returned to the surface long enough to put on a wetsuit, which would have prevented the hypothermia from aggravating his DCS potential. But again, like in the moment, I mean, you're not I mean, thinking. Nobody's think- yeah, nobody's thinking. And, and you know, the best of intentions. It's like back when we did that old episode about Hoot's Law. Old oh, Hoot. Right? Oh, Hoot. No matter how bad the situation is. We can always make it worse. No truer words in this kind of situation, for sure, or even any group of divers. You can always make it worse. And it seems when there's a lack of thought, lack of preparedness, lack of proper equipment or training, et cetera, that's Hoot's Law goes into full effect. It just is bound to get worse. Yeah, this and this is why, you know, you know experience is such an important aspect to your continued diving future. And that experience needs to be methodical and purposeful, not just mindlessly yeah. swimming around the same dive site you have 10, 10 times before. There's got to be purpose to each of those dives that you do, and there's got to be you know, functionality in the execution of what you're doing underwater. You have to learn how to train is the thing. I mean, that's what that getting experience is, is know how to train. You know, the old practice makes perfect isn't true. It's perfect practice makes perfect. In other words, you have to practice correctly. If you're just practicing bullshit, Over, yeah. all you got is a, a whole bunch of experience with bullshit. You, and in order to do that, you, you need a, an instructor or a mentor that can show you this is, what need, this is what you have to work on, this is what you have to look for in your in your diving to improve on or to, to hone. And this is what will get you out of a situation like this. Right. It's why it you know, goes back to why, you know, that 10,000 hours rule of, of really learning to master something, it takes time. It's why be, becoming a, a surgeon is a decade-long endeavor of schooling and practice and training. It's you need the repetition. And, and obviously, you know, scuba diving isn't brain surgery. But at the same time, there are special, unique environments that just having a C-card while playing follow the leader in most most training situations is never going to prepare you for that reality. Right. It, it's more of, it's not brain surgery, but the consequences of fucking up are about the same. There as you far go. as, you know, yes, diving has a little more forgiveness to it, but when you fuck up with it, you have time to sit and think about your fuck up a lot of times. It's the real problem too. Like poor old Gary and Julie did. They had time... Like, motherfuck, what were we thinking? And Gary especially has got to be, I mean, oh, yeah. he made it through the thing, but I would think yeah, he didn't want a, to. That's a horrific, horrific life to live after that. 
Yeah, you feel responsible, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. All right, everybody. Well, hey, what do you think? Do you have enough money for that therapy for the rest of your life? <laughs> right, right. What kind of shipwreck dives are you guys doing? Are you doing trust me dives, or are you trying to be as safe as possible down there? Let us know. Uh, all of you that have been listening, thank you again for uh, another year uh, as we've moved into the second half of 2022. Um, our listenership is up again for another another year, consecutive year. What is this, six, going on six years now, Brando? Yeah, our dude, six, we're into our sixth of, year. Mm-hmm. Six year of putting the show out and another climb and listenership is uh, well on the way. So awesome. Thank you to everyone out there. Thank you to all you uh, Patreon sponsors out there, those of you who are buying Manscaped and Abyss Coffee. Thank you guys so much. Totally uh, love to hear it and glad to see you guys out on a dive boat one of these days. Brandon and I help you. Glad to help you put on and take off that condom catheter if you're well manscaped. <laughs> whoa, and you, and you, whoa, whoa, and whoa. Been, uh, Brando's going to help. He's going to bring his own special bottle of Crop Reviver post-dive to freshen you up for that uh, trip back up, back on the boat. What are you volunteering and, uh, us for, James? Is, it, is the podcast worth, is fame worth that, really? <laughs> All right, should we sign some logbooks? Uh Let's sign some motherfucking logbooks. Let's get these motherfucking logbooks off this motherfucking podcast. <laughs> All right. Brando, the path of a righteous diver is beset <laughs> on the sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil divers. <laughs> Very good. Very good. We're all going to be like... Uh, Little Fonzies, motherfuckers, yes. James, be like a little motherfucking Fonzie. And what's Fonzie like? He's cool, baby. He's cool, baby. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Same trust me dive, (laughs) same consequences. There you go, everybody. There you go. Learn some lessons. 